Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Bard Flies, where we have a very special treat for you today. For today's mini-sode, we'd like to welcome to the pod Dr. Dan Normandin, a postdoctoral fellow in early modern English literature at George Mason University, an expert on Cymbeline, and not coincidentally, a friend of the pod since before the pod even existed. Dan, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you, guys. So, Dan, uh, thanks for joining us. When James and I were reading Cymbeline, and of course, Bardflies listeners, we must impress upon you the importance of listening to our Cymbeline episode, perhaps even before you listen to Dan's astute commentary and exposition. We immediately thought of you, Dan, because you've been doing some work on Cymbeline as part of your research. And this is one of the more obscure plays in the Shakespeare canon. What led you to Cymbeline? How have you worked on this play? What do you think is interesting about it? Just give us sort of your, a little bit of your background and sort of the work that you've been doing on this play. And then we can dive into uh, one of the weirder entries in Shakespeare's work and draw things out of you based on our commentary and, and thoughts previously. Sure. Well, I was drawn to Cymbeline because I was very interested in representations of the national past in English Renaissance literature, and especially of the ancient nat national past, right? A past that's very different from the medieval history that Shakespeare relates in his history plays of the 1590s. Um, and so Cymbeline was a kind of obvious choice for me in that regard. It was Shakespeare's ancient British play. Um, the play that even more than King Lear um, engages with this notion of a primordial national memory, a memory at the at the beginning of historical consciousness, um, if you want to put it that way. And specifically, I was interested in its representation politically. I was interested in the play as, as a political story, its representation of the relationship between the ancient British and the Romans, the Romans as an imperial power who are expanding, who are trying to attain some kind of sway over the British, whether in the form of military conquest or in the form of these tribute payments that they're trying to exact. And I was interested in that particular representation of imperial expansion and occupation, especially because this is being written at a period in England and in or around the year 1610, 1611, when the English are starting to plant permanent colonies across the Atlantic. Jamestown is founded a few years before this. There's a lot of promotional literature being published around this time about the colonization process. And so I was interested in, in that historical context. How does the representation of this ancient history of what we might call colonization, or at least um, imperial power, um, how does that sort of reflect the ongoing history in early modern England of similar processes. And so that's kind of how I was attracted to this play, which is to say through historical and political questions, rather than through any aesthetic connection, which as you might know, it, it's not necessarily the play that's going to grab you for that reason. Uh, <laughs> so I, I sort of approached it through a, a back door in that way. So Dan, I, it sounds like you might actually be well positioned based on all this to shed some light on one of the things that Will and I were talking about when we recorded the episode, which is so much of Shakespeare's, you know, those medieval plays that you're talking about, the King John's, the Henry plays, have a strong sense of 
the unitary nation of England, specifically even England, not not as much Britain, against the world and like the sort of the specialness of England as opposed to these other European mm-hmm. powers that they're, you know, in, in those places, it's usually France because that's the, the adversary is in those, in the time periods of those places. But there seems to be a, a more ambivalent relationship to the Roman Empire in Cymbeline where they have this pro-British thing of, you know, the British can beat the Romans and they don't need to be part of the empire, but also in the end, actually it's better for them to be in the empire, which seems like a little bit of a different feel or a little bit of a different idea from those earlier plays that are much more like England can go it alone and will shock the world. So what do you, uh, how do you account for that? Do you think there is a difference there or do you think it's, there's a through line? Yeah, so I would put it as, I think there's a tension in Cymbeline between Britain as what you're talking about, a kind of independent nation or as a standalone, unique kind of nation, and Britain as part of a a sort of larger political community, as embodying a broader historical relationship with other nations, with Rome in this case. Um, By that I mean, you know, it's interesting that at the end of the, at the end of Cymbeline, we get this almost reunion, this, this almost family reunion, that parallels all of the actual family reunions we see on stage, where, you know, sons are returned to fathers and husbands and wives are reunited. And then we get this sort of melding of Britain and Rome, right? Where rather than a conquest being depicted, we have almost a a sort of meeting of the minds or a, a family reunion between these two political entities. Even though earlier there's, you know, various references to Britain as this unique nation, right? So think of like the Queen and Cymbeline protesting when the ambassador Lucius is asking them for tribute payments, right? And they're sort of making this claim for Britain as we are a warlike nation who will rebuke our invaders, right? So in that sense, we get Britain as the independent nation. Uh, But then that seems to kind of melt away at the end. I'm interested in in the way that that but those two ideas can coexist. I think there's there are various ways to answer that, right? Well, how can this image of Britain as this sort of fortress that stands like an island, you know, removed from the world, of the world, but not in it, I think is the way that Imogen raises it. And at the same time, it, it seems to kind of coalesce with Rome at the end. And there are historical explanations for that, right? I think that the history plays of the 1590s are written in a very different historical moment than Cymbeline. I think Shakespeare is very conscious of King James's efforts to promote this idea of a unified British culture. James was trying to change the name of the nation to Great Britain. As part of that was fostering all of these cultural attempts to represent a unified and ancient British memory. And at the same time, James was setting himself up as a kind of Roman leader and was putting forth all of these images and medals and masks that represented him as a Roman leader. And so there was that push-pull within James's King James's cultural representation that I think you see reflected in the tension-filled political representations in Cymbeline. Yeah, so that actually raises kind of an interesting question for me too, because James you know, James Stewart, right, of Scottish extraction. There's a heavy Celtic emphasis, even down to the names of the characters in Cymbeline, or at least the British characters, right? I'm sort of struck by how you have all these reversals to James's point where you have 
characters going and enlisting in the Roman army down in Italy and sort of coming back and invading and switching sides and disguising one another. But one of the things that I think is kind of fascinating about all of this is you have the character of the queen, right? Who's sort of the great villain who ends up wasting away when her son Cloten disappears and is beheaded by these English woodsmen or British woodsmen, the king's sons, etc etc convoluted (laughs) typical late shakespearean plot i guess where i'm going with this though is the queen is the one who is urging the king to reject paying the tribute and she's the one who's sort of incepting this whole idea of nationalism nationalist rejection yeah of the romans and like what do you think is going on there specifically because the queen is without a doubt the villain of yes. the story and sort of the author of the destruction of Cymbeline's family to a certain degree. Though Cymbeline is kind of a moron as well, which um, can't be understood. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, so I don't know. How do you sort of place that? Like uh, you have the queen as this perfidious but intelligent British character, right? And then you have the, you have the king as kind of this incredulous dupe and it ultimately comes out right for him more or less in the end but he ends up caving to Rome. So I'm just interested, how do you see that when you're looking at the characters personified in a way? Yeah, that's a great question. You're totally right. And a lot of critics and writers on Cymbeline have remarked on this, right? That the most nationalistic, most pro-British sentiments are voiced by this straight ahead villain. And so does, does that mean that the ideas themselves are called into question by the play? I wouldn't put it in that way, in the way that I just said, right? I do think that there is something wrong, that we're supposed to recognize something wrong about the way that the queen is speaking, right? That her version of blind, what we might think of as almost jingoistic isolationism, as, as weird as that combination of terms might seem, is supposed to be at least corrected by the end of the play. And I I think part of the reason why her ideas come across as wrong is that she is trying to disrupt the proper genealogical line of the British throne through sort of elevating her son Cloten to the, you know, to place him in a powerful position. So she is, in a sense, she is messing with the, the way that Britain is supposed to be ruled, even as she's offering these patriotic or nationalistic sentiments. There are some interesting pieces written about how the queen represents a sort of martial feminine power. There are several examples in ancient British history of figures like this, like Boadicea, right? These female rebels against Roman occupation or Roman rule in in various ways. And the queen seems to, if not be directly representing those figures, at least shares in some of that kind of feminine power. It's interesting that her mode of of wicked feminine genealogical disruption and isolationism is partly what is corrected by the end, right? Through this reconnection, reuniting, recognition of sons with fathers. So I think that's one way we might read the queen, right? Through that gendered lens. But I also think it's the fact that she's trying to mess with the genealogy and that what a romance, a Shakespearean romance is supposed to do is to bring genealogy back together, right? That that's what we get in in comedy, but also in romance is we get these families that are broken apart, family lines that are violently disrupted and that, that are healed back together into a singular familial body by the end of the play. I think we see that in various romances. Winter's Tale, especially, for instance. 
the Tempest. Uh, and I think that's also what we see in Cymbeline. And the queen, even though she has these patriotic sentiments, is the figure who disrupts genealogy. And I think that that's why she needs to go, right? We need to get the family back together. And in order to do that, we need to get rid of her and we need to get rid of her son in order for that to work by the end of the play. I hope that makes some kind of sense. And so then does that play into the resolution with Imogen as well? Because, I, I mean, I, I, I wasn't quite clear reading the play if the opposition to Posthumus as Imogen's husband was purely because of the desire of the queen and thereby of Cymbeline to have her marry Cloten, or if there was a dynastic concern that was sort of more broad that is then resolved right. by the reappearance of the two sons. Yeah, well, I think that's right, right? Because she is the heir, and so her decisions carry great weight since those sons seem to be out of the picture. And I think what's interesting about Posthumus is that he is speaking of genealogy, right? He is completely unconnected. He is an orphan and he, his family history is unknown, right? I love that line at the beginning when the, the gentlemen, the two gentlemen are talking in the first scene and one of them says, I cannot delve him to the root, right? So he has this undelvable history. There, there's no root in his family past. I think that's partly what makes him something of a dangerous figure as far as someone who might marry this princess. But I, I think what we see through the arc of Posthumus, he's a fluid character, right? He moves from place to place. He's suddenly in Italy, which seems to be not so much ancient as Renaissance Italy, which is strange, you know, and then suddenly, suddenly he's back in Britain, but then he puts on different outfits. He, you know, he's a British peasant, and then suddenly he's a Roman soldier, right? He's constantly changing national and familial and personal identities. But of course, at the end, he is, you know, as the princes are reunited and sort of snapped back into place, he is a figure who doesn't have or has lost his family and national identity, and then is able to find it again, is able to reconnect, in part through the kind of vision he has of his family, where we see what his family past actually looked like whatever you might think of that scene as an artistic success or not. And then in part through the actual reunion that he has with Imogen. So, you know, what I'm trying to draw out of all this is that there is this dynamic of figures who either disrupt genealogy or who don't fit into genealogy, who are sort of outside of the family, floating around, who are reconnected, who are recombined back into this singular united family at the end of the play and if they don't want to be reunited within the family they are kicked out they are killed off i think we see that with posthumus's arc as well as with the queens and, and cloten's arc as well mm -hmm. so to radically shift topics here this play stands out to me also because of the sheer pileup of improbable plot contrivances yeah. and i kind of wanted to pick your brain about that and just discuss and refresh the memories of our listeners for some of the truly whack things that happen, <laughs> lack of a better term. In yeah, this yeah. So you have like a lot of very strange plot mechanics. So you have this bet with Yakimo over whose women are the most beautiful and the most chaste. And right. Posthumus essentially saying, oh, go and try and seduce my, my wife. I bet you won't be able to seduce her. And if you do seduce her, I will like pay you a reward. 
right. what is going on there. And also we can talk about sort of the Cloton beheading and the mistaking of Cloton's body and so on and so forth for Posthumus. But it just seems like, do we feel like Shakespeare is, is phoning it in or you have to just kind of embrace in these romances ridiculous plot contrivances to make it work? I mean, even more so right. than usual. Right, yeah. I mean, so one thing I will say is that as you know, right, it is in the nature of the romance genre that um, the plot is unbelievable, that it involves crazy coincidences, that it often involves the supernatural, right, the god suddenly visiting down the stage at the end. And I am not at all opposed to that. I love that stuff. But I think it's it's hard to pull off well. And I think what you get in plays like, you know, Pericles or Cymbeline is it's as if the contrivance that is built into the romance genre kind of overwhelms the playwright and it, it just becomes too wild. I think what's wonderful about the really good ones, you know, like The Tempest or The Winter's Tale, is how well they manage that, right? There is contrivance, but it works so well. Right? It is totally artificial, but wonderfully so. I would agree with you just on, a, on the artistic note that I don't think that Cymbeline works as well as those plays. But I do think it's what's great about reading these plays that we might not think work as well is that it allows us to see kind of the ingredients of the play in a somewhat clearer way, right? So we can see that the various plots of Cymbeline don't seem to add up. They seem to kind of come from totally different places and we're not really sure how they congeal. So as you're mentioning, right, there's this wager plot. And then how does that fit in with the the ancient British, the political stuff and all of that, right? It, it doesn't seem to congeal. What I like about that, just as someone who who writes about these plays, is that it's, we can see how Shakespeare, you know, he's taking this story that dates back to Boccaccio, right? This wager plot, which is taken up in a 16th century novella called Frederick of Denson, but it dates back to Boccaccio's Decameron. Uh, and it's very much in that mold of that sort of medieval tale that Picaccio and Chaucer wrote, right? There's this sort of cynical financial plot that is supposed to sort of prove one's morality or a character's morality in some way. And there are a bunch of stories that are like that. Um, so there's that medieval sense to it. And then there's all the other stuff which Shakespeare is lifting from Hollinshed, the political and historical content, which he's lifting from Hollinshed. And it's not unusual for him to take plots from different sources and combine them. But the, the fact that they're not really combined that well in Cymbeline is, I think, fascinating. I, I think it is. it allows us, I think, to see his process a bit more. It maybe even allows us to see other writers. Like, so many people think that Posthumus's dream vision is not Shakespearean because, you know, it's written in this strange verse, the, what they call fourteeners, the long lines when the family is sort of chanting around him, which was more the style in the earlier plays, like the when Shakespeare was a child. And so some people think that he didn't write that. Alexander Pope, who edited Shakespeare's work in the early 1700s, literally just removed it. He removed it from Cymbeline. He's like, this is not Shakespeare, right? <laughs> so whether we believe that or not, it's clear that there's a kind of hodgepodge mishmash of stuff in the play. I think as a reader and as a theater goer, you might kind of roll your eyes at some of it. But as someone who's interested in the historical background and the process of composing these plays, I think that's really interesting. And that's why I like studying some of the plays that aren't as polished. And Dan, what are some, just by virtue of comparison, what would you say is a more successful play that does that, that combines multiple sources, but maybe does it in a way that's seamless enough that you don't really notice? 
Well, I think King Lear is a great example of a play that manages to have, you know, what the TV writers would call the A plot and the B plot, that manages to have those go on and go back and forth between them and somehow hold them in a a unity, right? At least my thought about King Lear is that I never feel like those don't belong together. They are working together and they are, I think, leading towards, I think, similar ideas, expressing similar themes in a way that the various plots in Cymbeline maybe don't as clearly. Or Midsummer Night's Dream, to use another canonical example, where it moves back and forth between the kind of higher born lovers and the the lower born rude mechanics. I think that that is a much better example, I think, of plots that are working together, that are united, um, that are telling the same story. So those are some examples, but there are many. He's usually very good at combining various plots in, in that sense, hiding his various sources, right? Hiding the fact that he's combined various sources together. Right. So question for you, Dan, and this is just taking a total jump from the deep substance of the play and the plotting and the structure. But I know that you've taught Shakespeare at the college level at a couple of different universities over the years. And I just wanted to pick your brain on that as well. What has that experience been like How are college students responding to Shakespeare? What has surprised you the most in terms of the reactions and kind of engagement that you've had? I I know you're just coming off a semester of having taught uh, some of the real, you know, heavy hitter classics, uh, George Mason. Uh, I'm just curious what that experience has been like, just because I think obviously we're all mildly obsessed with Shakespeare, which is uh, at this stage and and we're we're many, many episodes in. Right chapters of your dissertation on on Shakespeare, you know, you're working on papers and publications. So obviously we're sold on it, but what about the average college student that's sort of engaging with Shakespeare for the first time? What has surprised you? What's been interesting to you about how they've reacted to the work? What sort of hits and what, what doesn't resonate at all? Yeah, well, I think the thing about teaching Shakespeare is that everyone comes into class knowing about Shakespeare, right? And and having read something by him in some context. So there's always a degree of familiarity there, which is very different from teaching other big deal Renaissance writers like Milton or Spencer, where students won't know much about the author and, and won't have read the works before. So that makes for a very different dynamic. People know, have some kind of history with, have some kind of preconceptions about Shakespeare. Some of them have been in productions in middle school or high school. And so I think what you're doing when you're teaching Shakespeare at the college level is you're always bouncing your ideas and and your pedagogy off of that pre-existing experience. So that's one aspect of teaching Shakespeare to students. I do think, though, what's interesting at at the same time is that there's always that, even though they're familiar with it, it is very difficult. And that's interesting about Shakespeare, is that it's always very difficult. The familiarity and the difficulty don't seem to go together, but they do. And I think, especially when you're reading it, rather than just watching a play, reading it for a college class, you always have to kind of remind students, like, it's okay if this is hard, if this is difficult. You're not supposed to get this. And so I think, especially in the first few weeks of a Shakespeare class, there's a, oh boy, is this, is this what we're going to be reading all semester, right? And way more than what we read in high school. So that 
tension, I think, between the familiarity and the resistance of those texts is always interesting to me. But what's interesting, I think what you asked what's surprising, I, I think sometimes what's surprising is that once you're a few weeks in, students will start to react to the plots and respond to the characters much in the same way as they would, you know, a contemporary novel, expressing likes and dislikes for characters, you know, reacting on a kind of more basically emotional level to plot developments and things like that, rather than being totally distant and totally removed from it. There's a kind of immediate emotional connection there, which is easy to forget if you're like writing in an academic way about these plays. It's easy to kind of get wrapped up in various contexts, various ways of using history, various theories, etc. And so it's nice to kind of return to that basic level of you know, I don't like Oberon. <laughs> I just, you know, Oberon's kind of a uh, a dick. That kind of re reaction, a relationship to the text. And so, yeah, so I, I've had, you know, it's interesting. I've had very different reactions from different students about it. I've literally had students email me and say, I don't like this. I'm trying to do well in the class, but, you know, I've, I've never really responded well to Shakespeare and I'm just totally resistant to this. So you'll get expressions of pure resistance sometimes, but then you'll also get a few messages of people like, you know, I was hesitant at the beginning of class, but I warmed up to it later on and, you know, now I'm into it. And, you know, I was teaching on Zoom for a long time, so that made it a, kind of a doubly difficult task. So lots of varying reactions, I would say, from students. But it's always very fun to teach, I will say that. It's because they come into it knowing Shakespeare and knowing his basic gist, it's always fun. And then, and I will say, not to be too digressive, it is fun to complicate people's familiar notions of what they think Shakespeare is, right? It's fun to emphasize how collaboration played a role, especially at the beginning and the end of his career. It's fun to emphasize how his stories are not original, right? And so our, our notions about authorial originality as a benchmark of aesthetic achievement, which we're so used to, right? Just kind of go out the window, right? He's not making up most of these stories for a few plays here and there. And so it's fun to kind of revise our very familiar notions of what makes for a good play or a good story. It's fun to kind of mess around with that. So yeah, those are some aspects of Shakespeare, yeah. Let me ask you, Dan, as, a, as someone who studied and, and teaches Shakespeare, you know, we, Will and I haven't really engaged with this question directly on the pod since we did our little halfway mini-sode when we got halfway through the plays. But, you know, you mentioned Chaucer, Milton, Spencer, some of these other, you know, heavy hitters of the time who are now a little bit more known academically, but are not sort of in the popular imagination. What do you think it is about Shakespeare specifically that has made his work above everyone else's endure so much more. As someone who's studied the plays and, and knows the work, do you think we're just making a lot out of one person for no reason? Or, or do you think there's something different about his work that makes it more enduring? We absolutely are making a lot out of one person. All right? I think it's, it's just kind of hard to deny that he has attained a stature that is so mythologized uh, and so dominant that it's easy to forget that he was, you know, a person who existed at a particular time and engaged in a particular literary culture among, and one of the things I try to emphasize in the classroom is that, you know, he is one of several, or a body of playwrights in the late 1500s and early 1600s who are really radically, and I think excitingly changing familiar notions of what one can do on the stage, right? Marlowe, Johnson, Middleton, Fletcher, et cetera, right? Some of whom he collaborates with. 
So he's part of a community. And I think what's unfortunate about his super, super elevated status is that we can forget that he's part of that community. He's taking ideas. He's work, literally working with other playwrights. That a huge part of why he becomes successful are those partnerships and those collaborations. I will say my sense is, and, and you know, this might just be biased, is that he, you know, he is a better writer than the other playwrights. I do think that. I think why has he become successful? I think he is amazingly flexible in the genres that he can write with. I don't think anyone else ever attained his proficiency at writing in the comic mode, writing in the tragic mode, in the romantic mode, or the historical mode, and being able to succeed in all of those areas. That's not really something you see at the same level in other playwrights. It's not unusual to write for various genres, but to do it so successfully as Shakespeare is, I think, unusual. And I think that was recognized very soon after he died when that first folio was put out, seven years after he died in 1623. And it was a, com a complete works. And I think that was a sign of the regard that his community, his theatrical company helped put out the book. It's a sign of the regard that his community held him in. But I don't necessarily think, you know, the kind of questions of is Shakespeare better than Milton or whatever, you know, I don't really engage in those questions. I don't find them productive. I don't think in those terms of who's better. I think that Shakespeare, because of the flexibility of the stories he was able to tell, is more user-friendly and exportable than a writer like Milton or Spencer. The reason it helps him be translated into different cultures, for instance, and it helps him be translated across historical periods, precisely because he's taking so many stories from different periods, from the medieval period, classical period, from modern literary sources, right? There's a kind of massive grab bag of sources that he's using, which in turn translates into a flexibility in how he can be produced and how he can be reinterpreted in various centuries and in various nations as well. And I would just point out, just on the level of the poetry, on the level of the line, he is, I, I think, I just find his achievement on that level more accomplished than the other playwrights. And I, I think when he's at his best, he can write like no one else. I mean, he has, a, he has an ability to write these tangled, complicated lines that seem easy, that seem kind of effortless, which again is something that his collaborators remark upon in a way that I think even someone like Marlowe, who's a wonderful writer, who, who's, who is a great phrase maker, and whose lines are very fun, there's a little bit of effort in them, right? There's a kind of strenuousness to them that you don't necessarily get when Shakespeare is in his prime. Mm. And I think that's partly what makes him so attractive and why I love rereading him so much. It so Dan, like sorry, just to summarize, Dan, I, I, I think what you're saying on a narrative level, and I guess I'm just wondering if, if I'm hearing you correctly, but it sounds like what you're saying on a narrative level is that he's someone who has something for every taste and something that's good for every taste. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think he's very, he's very accomplished in various genres in a way that other playwrights are not. I will say though, I think that if you look at other Renaissance plays, the comedies of Ben Johnson, for instance, there's no reason why those couldn't be successful nowadays. I mean, I think that Johnson's comedies, you know, you could make film updates of them and they would work. They would still go, right? 
I think in, in some ways there is an element of historical accident in the fact that Shakespeare was became so immensely popular. And you can say that about any literary era, right? It's not to take down those who have been canonized, but you can always look at the less canonized works and realize that, you know, these are just as worthy of being read, just as worthy of being discussed, of taking a place in the popular consciousness. It just hasn't happened. Sometimes it's just a historical accident. It just hasn't happened, right? It's not necessarily a reflection of some great inferiority. There are just various kind of moments in Shakespeare's afterlife where he was elevated in a way that other playwrights were not. Although that was a, I mean, not always, right? I mean, there were certainly periods like the restoration period in the late 1600s where his reputation was kind of at an ebb. So it's very contingent, very sort of uncertain sometimes how these literary afterlives take place. And so I always encourage people to go back and read Ben Johnson, read Marlowe, read Thomas Middleton. There, there are great plays that are being written when Shakespeare is writing his plays. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a great Chuck Klosterman essay where he talks about rock and roll and how for pretty much every musical period throughout history, we can only really name one or two composers for each era, you know, hundreds right. of years in the distance. So, you know, Bach or Mozart, uh, right. Beethoven, you'll get, you'll get a few here and there. And obviously as you approach closer and closer, more names will come to mind because they're part of sort of the consumption and kind of the, the general repertoire that people are listening and engaging with. But it is kind of amazing because even with something like rock and roll, right? Like we could rattle off dozens of artists, but you guys, to be clear, you guys yeah. could rattle up dozens of yeah. artists. James doesn't even know probably who Led Zeppelin, uh, <laughs> Led Zeppelin was. But right, not everybody is going to make it, even though they were creating tremendously vital music. And I think what Klosterman yeah. sort of ends up saying is like, look, you got to boil it down, right? Not everybody is going to be remembered forever, except by specialists and real music nerds. So he ends up talking about, like, well, is it Elvis that'll be remembered? Is it the Beatles? Uh, it's a little weird and idiosyncratic are they really representative of rock and roll is it the rolling stones or do they right. keep too much from you know certain traditions and and aren't really distinctively rock enough is it dylan or is you know dylan just kind of too much reinvention too much sort of experimentation yeah. so it's a it's a wonderful essay is it chuck berry you know sort of a progenitor of a lot of the riffs so you get you can have these interesting kind of conversations, but um, all of this is a great segue, Dan, into our lightning round questions for you. So okay, let's start with a fun one, popularized by Tyler Cowen, also of GMU, who has a great question that he always likes to ask his guests on various subjects, which is underrated or and overrated. What is the most underrated Shakespeare play, in your opinion, and overrated Shakespeare play? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, underrated, I think I would say it's hard to tell what is underrated because they're also, um, well, I, I think I would say Love's Labor is Lost is a somewhat lesser known one that I I'm really, right, Dan. I really love. Um, I love that play. It's actually interesting. Like, that, that is one of the plays for which Shakespeare seems to have originated the story, right, rather than taking it from a source. Yeah, I, I love, I've seen it performed a few times. I mean, I love its use of language. It's so virtuosic and it's really him showing off as far as how many different, speaking of what one of the things that makes him so lasting, all of the different kinds of English he can master, right? And I think that's really on display in Love's Labor is Lost. 
the sheer range of the kinds of dialects and versions of English that he can include and sort of um, represent. Overrated. Uh, um, God, that is such a tough one. I will say, and I want to qualify this, I don't respond to Hamlet in the way, I don't respond to it as some kind of towering masterpiece that stands apart from the rest of his work. I'm not sure that I would, if you ask me to pick one tragedy, I'm not sure that I would pick Hamlet. I find it kind of, I'm, I'm resistant to it in a weird way and I can't quite explain why. I think it has to do with, uh, you know, so much of that play is just scenes of uh, Hamlet being kind of riddling and strange and bizarre and other characters kind of being like, what's going on? You know, I find that I, I, I resist that a little bit. I want there to be a little bit more go or movement in the plot. And I think with Hamlet, you don't get that. That's kind of the point, right? And so I've always sort of reacted to it in a kind of prickly way, which is not to say that I think it's bad, I do think it doesn't necessarily deserve to be thought of as some sort of sun among uh, planets or anything like that. So that will be, I, I guess, my my controversial response yeah, to that. It seems like, I mean, I, I have Hamlet ranked as my number one, but I will say, I think it seems like it has a little bit of that same historical accident quality that you were talking about with Shakespeare himself, that right. for some reason we've just decided that this one specifically is you know, the grand achievement of all literature and, you yeah, know, and, yeah. and, and it's so far above all these other plays when, when maybe it's only a little bit better than the other plays. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's, it's one of the best. It's just like, I'm not sure I would put it way, way up there. Right. So in that sense, it's overrated, but that's not to say that I think it's bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dan, it's uh, it's music to my ears. One uh, you, you may or may not be aware one ongoing conflict between me and Will on the pod is my love for Love's Labor's Lost. <laughs> He's his belittling of it. So uh, I'm, I'm glad I don't to think it's, my I don't think it's bad, to be clear. I just, um, I'm charmed by uh, James's idiosyncratic uh, affection. Yeah. For it. Uh, <laughs> um, next lightning round question, Dan. What is your favorite Shakespearean adaptation? Oh man, that's a tough one. I, I would have to, I, I keep saying it's a tough one. They're all tough. I'm bad at lightning rounds. Well, I would say, I, th I think Throne of Blood, the Kurosawa adaptation of Macbeth is so fantastically creepy. And I always think of images from that movie when I think of Shakespeare on film, I always return. His depiction of the witches and his depiction of Lady Macbeth in Throne of Blood, the versions of those characters, just get under your skin and sort of just live with you. One thing I love in Throne of Blood is that the sound design of Lady Macbeth's slippers as she's walking to and from rooms is so creepy and haunting, just that sort of like snaky sound. And he just really plays with that. So yeah, I've, I think I first saw that movie maybe 10 years ago and I still think of those slippers and that sound. It's like, man, that's Lady Macbeth. That kind of like, you know, she's just around the corner, almost horror movie dynamic to it. It's hard to get him right on film, but I think Throne of Blood got as close as you can 
Yeah, the uh, the detail that sticks with me from that one, one of many images, is the gore spattered room. Yes, that's from the previous owner of the castle that they take him into, and it's like this is where he died, and it's just like there's yeah. blood everywhere, yeah, on, seeped into the walls, and you're just like fantastically creepy. Uh, yes. reminder that this is it's a potent movie for sure. Yeah. Great. Well, Dan, last question for you. Non-Shakespearean recommendation for something that you're reading or watching for listeners of the pod. Yeah. Well, I mean, one movie that I saw recently that I think is really interesting about drama and about performance is the Drive My Car, the Japanese movie that kind of became a weird like foreign film success in the States, despite being like three hours long and being very incredibly slow paced. But it revolves, well, it revolves around many things, but one of its kind of core plots involves the production of Chekhov. And I think it follows a a director whose mode is to have actors from various nations who speak different languages, and they all act in their own language. They act in their native language together on stage. So Mm -hmm. it's a kind of multilingual performance. And we really see a great deal of rehearsal scenes throughout the movie. And we may really stay with those rehearsal scenes. It's an interestingly paced movie, um, which is to say it's very very slow and meandering in a way that I sometimes like uh, when it comes to movies. But it's very interesting because you get to see this very idiosyncratic mode of performance. And I think what the movie asks us to think about is the relationship between the performance of a character in in one's own self, right? The way that a performance can activate or make us think about our own pasts, our own consciousness, our own way of interpreting ourselves in a way that sometimes can be kind of destabilizing and dangerous. And so I think there's there's a way in which the play and the stage and the world out of the stage blend together in the movie. And obviously, you know, if you think about Shakespeare a lot, you can't help but think about that. And it's something that Shakespeare is very interested in, obviously, right? Speaking of Hamlet, right? Where where does the performance end and the reality begin? It's something that he's always returning to in play after play. And I think Drive My Car has a very kind of similar interest in that question. Great. Well, Dan, thank you for joining us. It's been a delight to have you on Bard Flies. It's been great, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having you. Who, who would have known uh, in Professor Russell's seminar all those years ago that we'd be here age 33, 34 talking about Shakespeare, but uh, <laughs> we're still here. Still here. Yeah. yeah, strange things at work for sure. So, well, thank you, Dan. And, and that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in to Bard Flies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.